Are you ready? It's that time! gentlemen welcome to this episode of man buns and jesus i didn't remember to check which episode we're on but we're in season five the season of the exodus we're continuing through um, what god did for his people what god expected from his people in that book and today we're going to look at uh chapter 15 which if you've been following along with this podcast chapter 15 is immediately after what is one of the more iconic Bible events, and that is the parting of the Red Sea. And what we see in chapter 15 is we see Moses respond. And he responds with, oh, let's call it 17 verses of song that to us really doesn't sound so much like song because it's now translated in English and loses a lot of its, uh, I guess, rhythmic qualities um but for the sake of time we're not going to read those 17 verses if you want you can pause this podcast or this video whichever you're on and read uh exodus chapter 15 but we're we're going to just step into it and your background is moses is and the people of israel are celebrating what god has done with music and uh ben to introduce our guest and to tell us where we're going i'm going to leave that to you sure so uh, I've found myself to be quite opinionated when it comes to worship practices. Um, but that's the only place he's opinionated. Well, fair. Um, I'm often quite opinionated, but this is especially one of those places where I find myself quite opinionated. And uh, worship in in our modern context, I think, often looks very different than what we see in in moses pretty spontaneous song here uh and so to bring us uh, a little more expertise in the worship world and somebody else who's probably just as strongly opinionated as i am um we brought on dr jim marriott who's a return guest to the show um to to help us just kind of break down like what is moses doing and what does that tell us about maybe what we should be doing and how does that how does that or does that not reflect what we see in our churches today? So, uh, Jim, I'll throw it over to you. What strikes you from the songs of Moses and even the little one-liner that Miriam gives us too uh, about the way that they're worshiping and their their emphases and, uh, and what they're doing there? That's great. Well, first of all, thanks for having me as always. And uh, I need more lead time for these so that I can grow out my hair so that I can actually like be part of the man bun like legacy. We'll give you eight months next time. <laughs> so um, yeah, I'll just start now and maybe uh, maybe when I'm when I'm ready, we'll we'll do this again. But uh, luckily, this is all audio, so you can't see me one way or the other, and uh, that's lovely. So that's good. Is it audio? Are you people actually watching this? I don't know. Who knows? I think. I we have one person who watches through the whole YouTube video. 
Wow. Okay. Well, good for that person. God bless. Um, that's good. Well, uh, yeah. And uh, as far as worship opinions go, actually, I, I like to take pride that it's my job to to not have opinions, but cultivate opinions. But I'm sure I have them too. And uh, so I'll I'll own my biases just like everybody else. And uh, and here we go. But yeah, thanks for the opportunity, guys. It's really great to be with you. So in terms of this uh, the song of Moses. Um, yeah, I, I think you framed it really well, uh, Ben, that I, and then um, Josh, you, you guys too, with your Exodus study and uh, what has just happened here. And if you think about that, the whole scope of, you know, where Moses has come from uh, in this, not wanting to be the mouthpiece for God, not wanting to be the leader of this, not wanting to do any of this, and uh, God basically using him anyway. And now on the other side of this incredible victory um, and uh, work of salvation that uh, God has accomplished for the people of Israel, taking them out of slavery in Egypt and uh, beginning the process of delivering them into the promised land. Uh, yeah, Moses takes this opportunity to, to reflect and to, to compose this hymn of praise. Uh, and Miriam uh, echoes it uh, in her refrain as well. I I do wonder, yeah, which which came first, right? Is it, you know, is Miriam singing this refrain and Moses picks up on it, or is you know, uh, who knows? That's probably it's not not relevant, but uh, but it's interesting that there's um uh yeah that their uh, their language uh, uh, mirrors each other in many ways. But yeah, that, I mean, in in uh, in short, that's it. You know, God accomplishes this incredible. Uh, uh, incredible act of salvation, and uh, uh, Moses commemorates it by uh, putting it into song um, and uh, uh, using uh, an act of music to narrate uh, the salvation story of God. Um, that's the, the legacy that we have in this particular um, uh, biblical song. Now, Hearing kind of how you set that up, Ben, and then uh, Jim, how you bring out some of the realities here, something that comes to mind, and I need I need to admit to everyone listening to this, um, my illiteracy on <laughs> I what what I've discovered in contrast to Ben is the longer I've been out, the less opinionated I am about uh, methods of worship, <laughs> like. There was probably a point in my life where I would argue with you about whatever. Now I'm like, eh. As long as as long as you're like pointing people in the right direction, I'm not gonna complain. Uh so I've gotten less opinionated. And as far as like the musical side of things go, um I I couldn't tell you what a note was. Like I literally do not know how I should describe what an so. With that out of the way, with we all know how low the bar is for me. Something that stuck out when you guys were describing this response from Moses and Miriam and the people of Israel is the spontaneity of it, which, I mean, I guess they could have like planned. So I'm assuming they planned something like they had their, we're going to do this, whatever. But the way it reads is God does this incredible thing and they respond. And my question to the both of you is, uh, we don't see that as much today. And I, I wonder if part of it is 
we don't see God working in such big ways now, whether that's uh that's a reality or we just don't see that like we're we're bored. We we just anyway, so we don't have this spontaneity where we just see something and we're like, okay, we're gonna respond, especially not corporately. And my question is, do we lose something when we lose that spontaneity? And because I know there are people who try to recapture it with how they lead worship, do we do ourselves a disservice when we try and call it capture spontaneity? Yeah, I, I mean, like a can, uh, I, can I point something out here? So yeah, the one with the within, opinion. within our relatively rigid, like European old school mindset, there isn't a lot of spontaneity. You're absolutely right. Um, and even the like the spontaneity that you see from our evangelical brothers and sisters and the more like stripped down contemporary worship style that you see there, that's not quite what we're seeing from Moses and Mary. We're going to all come together in this building at this time and we're going to, we'll be spontaneous there, but be there at 10 o'clock. True. Yes. I think where you might see this more kind of in the vein of what Moses and Miriam are doing is in a black congregation. Um, Cause a lot of times in gospel music, like some of the, the refrains and lines and things that they're singing about are kind of spontaneously part of the song. Um, and listening to some of the music and, and some of what I've been exposed to, like just watching the, the musicians as they they participate in this you can tell they are trying to follow whatever's going on in front of them like lyrically chorally musically whatever um and this is just whoever is leading the song or leading the solo or whatever is just pouring out to god what's on their heart at that moment um and so some of this still exists it's just not something that is as familiar to us. And I'm guessing if we looked globally at Christianity, we'd see more of this too, uh, beyond the American context. Well, I also think it depends what songs you're singing. You know what I mean? Like most of the hymns in our hymnal have a backstory to them. Uh, most True. were written, uh, directly um, engaging with uh, societal circumstances or um, you know, the plague, or, you know, God's after faithfulness and different things in different ways at different times. So actually, um, you know, the hymnal companion to the, um, the Lutheran service book is a new resource book out, and it has stories of all of the different hymns and uh, kind of gives a backstory on what the author was thinking and what the author was experiencing when the, when the author wrote the, wrote the hymn. Uh, and this definitely happens in, in uh, modern song, you know, there's, uh, stories to a lot of the different songs that are produced, um, whether they're, um, you know, uh, from Lutheran theological perspectives or not, um, you know, the song variation that she did in the 1948 University of Irvine, um, uh, they have writing workshops where they get together and they write and they intentionally um, take life circumstances and uh, cultural circumstances and write songs in scripture and write songs of response. Um, it is seeing the intersection of God's work in the world uh, today. And, and you see this in uh, other faith traditions as well, other Christian denominations, where this type of reaction is happening. So I, I do think that, um, you know, uh, 
now think we all are God has a backstory. Amazing Grace has a backstory. Um, and uh, it's not dissimilar to the backstory that we see here with the Song of Moses. Um, I think y'all are right to see that Moses is reacting uh, and the people of Israel are reacting to what has just happened to them in song. And yet part of the, the enduring legacy of songs and hymns and spiritual songs is this is what Paul teaches us uh, in his epistle, but that, that we uh, we learn the faith through them. So like uh, because Moses has written this song commemorating God's work uh, in the Exodus, we have access to it um, that we too can make it our song. And by making it our song, we make that story our story. We participate in the Exodus. We are also delivered from uh, slavery and delivered into the promised land. And we, through the lens of Jesus, uh, have the fulfillment of that delivery that we've been rescued from sin, death, and the power of the devil. And we have been delivered into the promised land of forgiveness, life, and salvation that is ours now, even as we await Christ's return. So I, I, I only say that to say that I think music works the same way. It's, it's um, uh, you know, these hymns are lifting up narratives of God's work, God's faithfulness, and helping the community to rehearse those promises and to rehearse that narrative in a way that helps the community make it its own. Maybe it's something to kind of riff off of that real quick. When Luther really dives into the the image of the parting of the Red Sea as a kind of analogous to baptism, as God brings his people through from slavery and death into life uh, and freedom, uh, as we like, as I look at the the language of Moses' song, um, there's so much in there about redemption and salvation, uh, the greatness of God in in that work that I don't know the history on this and I'd be interested to see more. Um, but like, I wonder how much Luther making that connection was just looking at the story or how much of that was reading something like this text and going like, this is a salvation event. What else is a salvation event? Um, I don't know. I'm just throwing that out there, but it, it seems like it could be. I certainly think you see that in, in the New Testament, you know, um, uh, looking back to these Old Testament stories of salvation, the flood, um, uh, here this uh, Exodus deliverance and uh, uh, the passing through water, the crossing the Jordan. Um, all of these different passings through water are, uh, you know, milestones of deliverance. Um, and I, I certainly think that the those are parallel theologically uh, in baptism, uh, often in the New Testament and through a lot of different worship writings. Now, something that comes to mind, and this is going to be an incendiary comment, and I'm going to make it anyway because no one's going to stop me. Um, because what I'm hearing coming from what you were talking about, Jim, is that these songs they have a call it a formative call it a they have a the effect of discipleship which i think is something that a lot of you can experientially know and and what i mean by that for those listening is um i bet you remember a lot of songs 
I bet when they start playing on the radio within five or six seconds, you can be like, I know this song. I know a lot of the lyrics. You might not have them right, but you at least know words that sound like whatever is being said. Um, and, and the songs have a way of just sticking in our head. And there's a lot of truth to how much substance there is. And Ben, you pick up on that with, like this gives us more evidence for these incredible <laughs> connections through scripture. But what that brings to mind for me is if music and if songs are such powerful vessels for imprinting things on our hearts and on our minds, what does that say about what I think is a fair criticism of some of a lot of modern worship music? And that is, let's say the vessel is not filled. There, there is a, uh, there's a lack of content. It tends to be very basic, very like, whereas if you get some hymns, I'm not going to say all hymns because there are some hymns that it's the same kind of, there's low level. It's essentially Jesus loves you with extra steps. Um, but a lot of hymns you'll get almost like a theological lesson that is built in through these verses. Um, so I guess, what does that speak to? Should we be pursuing material that has deeper, I don't know, should we be taking more advantage of this of this vessel? What's kind of the-, the Yeah, it's, it's a good kind of age old question, right? And uh, um, I was reminded of this recently in my congregation, uh, Faith Lutheran in Georgetown uh, here in Texas, we, uh, we just did a, uh, I created a Google form where people could uh, put in their favorite hymns and kind of tell me the story of why it was their favorite hymn. Uh, because, you know, I'm new to the congregation as the associate pastor, and so I'll do the worship planning, and I pick hymns that I think that the congregation knows, and uh, I have some expertise in him, you know, him and me. So I, it's the same thing, Josh, you know, I pick the good hymns with the good stories and the, you know, and the, the good content. And I keep getting back that they don't know some of these hymns. So I said, tell me what you know. Yeah, tell me your favorite hymns. And this has actually gone really well. And it's amazing um, that a person's favorite hymn, and now I don't have the you know, statistics exactly to back this up, but generally I have observed that a person's favorite hymn is not their favorite because of the theological content of it. But more times than not, it's the circumstantial uh, use of it. This song was played at my wedding. This hymn was sung at my father's funeral or my grandfather's funeral. Uh, this was, you know, marked a meaningful time for us with this. So, so you know, really these hymns become markers of uh, whether it is events or milestones or, or different things like that. And that's what also makes them memorable. So I, I, I have learned to ask of our hymns and our songs, what do we expect the song to do? What, um, what is the goal for this song? Because I do think, uh, Josh, to your point, many hymns teach and um, are poetically rich or doctrinally rich, and uh, they have a particular purpose, and they should be used for that purpose. Uh, uh, repeating Tzei chorus does not have the same depth 
um, uh, praise and worship song, you know, with a repeating refrain, uh, may or may not have the same theological depth to it. Uh, many people critique, uh, you know, music that comes from the American tradition. You guys are even referencing some of that before, not only for its spontaneity, but also just the repetitiveness of it. Uh, people perceive as a lack of depth theologically, let's just say. And, uh, you know, I, I often disagree with people on that critique. The song is just doing something different. Uh, repeated refrains are helpful for uh, embodying uh, a particular narrative. The horse and his rider, you know, he is thrown into the sea. That's not, um, that's not talking at all about, you know, uh, uh, God's work of salvation through Christ or the forgiveness of sins that he's won for us. This is like a, 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 a significant earthly victory that God has won uh, in a particular way, particular place at particular times. So, uh, you know, what do we expect a song to do and how do we measure that expectation of the song? Some songs teach weekly. Some songs work um, widely and communally um, and invite participation are more accessible uh, and in fact, at, at uh, Best Practices in Phoenix, coming up um, uh, in about a month, I'll be leading a session on this that kind of asks that question. Like, what uh, what do we expect a song to do, and how do we measure a song that way, rather than measuring every song with the same the same lens, the same measure? Um, uh, not every song is going to teach the full, you know, um, the full salvation narrative, you know, and that's okay, but um, we also shouldn't make a diet of just all of, you know, uh, these simple refrains because then we lose the depth. Um, but we have to know what we're doing and be intentional about the variety that we um, that we curate for our congregations. I think I'm going to be showing up to your uh, your talk there, Jim. Uh, just so you know, um, I I something that resonated with me is as you were talking about like at times. The different focuses of different songs can strike people in new and interesting ways. I remember um, there's a college student in my congregation who, I think it was last summer, uh, we were singing Sing to the Lord. Uh, I think 808 in the hymnal for those of you who have your hymnal floating around. Um, and he came up to me after church and he's like, I think I have a new favorite hymn. Uh, it sounds like a sea shanty. Um, I was like, okay, kind of, yeah, I'd buy that. Uh, and then he started making comments about wanting to be a pirate Christian. And like, I feel like I lost him a little bit there. But then like a couple weeks later, he came back to me and he's like, man, that song's still stuck in my head. And I feel like I'm learning things. And I'm like, cool. that's, that's what we want out of this. Um, and the the cool part about that, song for me is it's it's simple but it says some cool things about god and some pretty profound things about god uh and the way that he works in our lives so like i don't know how much he got out of it but i think he got something out of it and as you were kind of pointing out that should be the point of our, our worship music is a little bit to teach but a little bit more to know uh know this god that we know and worship so yeah, and um, and the whole idea of you know 
this gets to a bigger question about what worship even is, right? You know, and who is worship for and what is worship accomplishing? Um, and a lot of uh, Christianity in the United States, you know, is so um, influenced by moralistic therapeutic deism, um, which I imagine has come up on y'all's in y'all's conversations before, you know, the church uh, makes me feel better about myself. Uh, I actually don't think we have ever touched moral therapeutic deism on this. Oh, okay. No, we've definitely touched on moralistic therapeutic deism, but I don't think it's ever been more than a passing reference. Yeah, I think it's been on our topic list since season one, and we've just never bothered (laughs) to actually do an episode on it. Well, I'll I'll outline it briefly for the hearer, but then you guys can do another show on it um, and get Beerman on or someone like that uh, to to really... (laughs) Um, But yeah, so moralistic therapeutic deism is... uh, um, prevalent theological undercurrent in um, Christianity in the United States today. That church is designed to make you feel better about yourself. That's the therapeutic. Um, that church is designed to teach you how to be a good person. That's the moralistic idea. And that church is designed to help orient your life around uh, some belief in some God, uh, which is the deism type idea. So moralistic makes you a better person therapeutic makes you feel better about yourself deism orients you around some god and so some of our songs that we sing in worship really align um quite nicely probably too nicely with that agenda um, making you feel better about yourself making you feel like you're a better person um and aligning you around some nondescript god that we could sing that song um in any number of faith traditions and it probably would work the same way uh, to be clear for everyone listening, we're we as a church body, we're not on board with moral. Oh, yeah, we're this isn't a positive thing, correct? Yeah, I was it, just about to, I was just clear where we're at, everybody. I was just making the turn like this is a bad thing. Um, and uh, Lutherans do not play this game, um, and we should not play this game. This is not uh, we as theologians of the cross, um, uh, really have a completely different mindset about. Uh, what the divine service is and uh, who's at work and what's being accomplished and for the sake of whom. Um, uh, So that when we come together for corporate worship, we're receiving the promises of God, forgiveness of sins, life and salvation that are couched in the wider narrative of who God is and how God has redeemed the world uh, through his son. So this story that we had, you know, uh, Exodus 15, uh, pointing back to the Exodus narrative it fits in this wider story of God's salvation, that God is the one that is working salvation for uh, God's people, that God is the one that is enacting forgiveness, life, and salvation um, for the sake of the world. That is the point of uh, Christianity, is to make known the work that God has done, Uh, not to make us a better person, not to make us feel better about ourselves, um, and in fact, uh, oftentimes when we come uh, face-to-face with what God has done, we don't feel better about ourselves because we realize that we're sinful human beings that are in need of a Savior. And we don't become better people because we, again, realize that we fall short of um, uh, God's will and God's way. We're made better in and through Christ, through his forgiveness, through the life that he brings, through the salvation that he works and promises, even as we await his final return. So that is a, a, we need to make sure that we have our assumptions clear about what church is all about in the first place. And then the songs that we sing 
you know, we don't pick a song because people like it. We pick a song because it makes witness of who Christ is and what Christ has done for us. Um, now, it might be that some songs function in different ways and are more or less accessible, more or less repeatable, more or less whatever. Uh, we and use different instrumentation, all sorts of different variety in music, and that's good. We like variety. We like the arts. But it, it's the centrality of what we're trying to accomplish that I think is is up for grabs. And I, that's where I think the Song of Moses really points to um, what, a, what a Christian song uh, accomplishes, uh, pointing to God's salvation um, that God has worked. And then you know, if you look at the end of the song, uh, instilling fear in other peoples and other gods because of who our God is and what our God is doing. I mean, man, what if we were known for that, that like, look out, like our God is uh, working salvation here. And uh, uh, this, is a, this is a serious deal. So it's cool. I think something that, what, what, what? I think something that, uh, I don't know. Well, something I want to clarify first. Um, I preached on some of the aspects of moralistic therapeutic deism re recently. And I had somebody come up to me after church. Does this mean we can never feel good walking out of church? And I want to say, no, that's not, that's not what we're trying to get at here. Like if you walk out of your worship service on Sunday, feeling comforted by what God has done for you and at, and your conscience is at peace because you know that in spite of your sin, God is working through you to bring his message of life and salvation into the world. Um, great. That is the exact feeling we want you to walk out of uh, church and out of worship with. But if you walk out of worship feeling more full of yourself, um, that's not what we're going for. And let's talk about those things. Um, the let's being you and whichever one of us is your pastor or if somebody else is your pastor talk to your pastor about it um but as as jim was kind of getting out there um as we look at the the content of what we're singing and using as part of our um our worship as part of our services uh, sometimes there are things that maybe are discipling us in ways that we don't want them to uh that do disciple us towards things like moralistic therapeutic deism or just uh, towards like a self-centered idea of the Christian faith, um, whether or not it makes you feel good. Um, and when we encounter these things, uh, Jim, I want to throw it back to you for a second here. When we encounter, encounter these things in our worship and you know, for some people, that's kind of just the style of their local church. They prefer that kind of song. And for some people, that may not be as problematic in terms of the way that it's discipling them. But for others, it could be a real concern. So what would you recommend in terms of trying to push back on the negative discipling that some of that music can do and instead push toward what we want to, to be happening in people's hearts and minds? Uh, as they hear preaching and, and worship and those kinds of things? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so uh, I'll, I'll try to get a quick but layered response, all right? So the first answer that I would have is 
uh, we put too much faith in music, right? And we put uh, music's too much the emphasis on worship in the first place. So like the song of Moses here is not a song that is enacting someone's salvation or facilitating the, you know, the, um, the you know, uh, parting of the Red Sea. Like God does that. And then we sing about it. So the songs are a response to God's work of salvation. They are not um, the catalyst of God's work of salvation. And, and this is where we get in trouble is that a lot of us think that um, when we come together for corporate worship, it's about the music and it's about what songs we sing, the style that they're in, whether I like that style or not, what service I go to based on what style of music is being sung at that. Like, that's all, I mean, it's fine to have your preferences. There's no problem, uh, but that's not what makes worship worship. Um, what makes worship worship is the preaching of the gospel and the administration of the sacraments um, that the Christian community comes together around so that they might tell the story of God's salvation uh, among themselves and for the sake of the world. So uh, when where music helps us with that, we should celebrate. Uh, where music gets in the way, we should uh, we should critique it. But it's never the catalyst itself. It's always pointing to who God is and what God is doing. That's the first thing. It's like let's just not make so big of a deal out of music. Let's make sure that we're making a big deal out of the way that the Christian community comes to, together around the Word of God as it's preached and as it is. Um, uh, received uh, through the sacraments. So then, uh, when we do sing, um, then we just need to be intentional about the songs that we sing, and that means different things in different um, different contexts. So, uh, uh, and yeah, different contexts are more or less comfortable with different uh, song patterns. Uh, musical, uh, instrumental accompaniments, things like that. And that's, that's fine. Like if different uh, communities can have different preferences. Uh, different individuals within communities can have different preferences. And you just have to navigate that. Um, uh, what's right and what's wrong, boy, that's pretty subjective, right? You know, there's some songs that I like that other people don't like at all. Um, there's some songs that I didn't like until I learned the story about them. And then now I actually really like the song. One example is uh, How He Loves, uh, a little bit older song now, but uh, was made popular by a Christian artist, David Crowder. Most people, just can't. many people I know, how about that, can't stand that song. They think it's uh, ridiculously emotive and affective. I say like it, um, but I know the backstory of it. It was written um, by a guy who had lost, a, 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 I think it was a close friend, and he was lamenting as he's writing the song of God's love. Well, that makes it mean something different to me than it does, you know, if you're just singing um, what seems to be kind of an empty or vacuous love song. Um, uh, we need songs when we're at the, in the pit. We need songs um, that help us lament and help us emote when we are at the depths of our sorrows. That is a good thing. And a lot of people who come into church um, are in the pit and they need songs that help them name that and express that. So, uh, you know, what do you expect a song to do? Uh, and how do we keep songs from being the main thing in worship? Because really they are a response to God's narrative. They're not the catalyst to the narrative. We're getting short on time here. So we're gonna power through the end of this. Uh, and we'll go to, to takeaways, which we always never warn people about. So Jim, if you were to have uh, people take away one thing from this and you gotta keep it brief, uh, 
what would that one thing be? Yeah, don't be afraid to love songs and love singing and worship. Um, and use your songs uh, to point to the narrative of who God is and what God has done for you and for the sake of the world. Josh? If songs and music and praise and worship are vessels for imprinting things on our heart and mind, be aware of what you're filling the vessel with. Ben. Cool. I'm gonna go with different songs mean different things to different people. So meditate on what that song is doing for you, but then also ask the people who like it, uh, because it might be it might mean a different thing to them. It might have a different story for them. It might be discipling them in a different way, and they can maybe help you uh, with something that is maybe not your favorite. So uh, with that. We thank you so much for joining us. Jim, thank you for battling through that pesky cough to uh, to join us today for a, an episode. Uh, do you have anything you want to plug really, really quick before we go? Oh, um, no. I just uh, plug going to church and uh, receiving the promises of God in faith. Okay. And go to his, if you're going to best practices, go to his talk. Um, hey, yeah, come see me. <laughs> he might not want to plug anything, but we will shamelessly. Uh, like our episode, if that's something that the platform you're listening on does, go ahead and subscribe to us on whatever platform you listen and all the other ones if you're really feeling dedicated to the cause. And if you have a topic or a guest that you would like us to talk about or to bring on, you can let us know, text us, reach out to the Facebook page. Um, we'll add it to the list. It just, it might be a minute. So, and buy the shirt with our faces on it if you're really, really dedicated to the show. Uh, with all that being said, brothers and sisters, go in peace. Serve the Lord. Thanks be to God.